Scientist, the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist, the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Matthew Kleban, who is a theoretical physicist. What? <laughs> and he is a professor of physics at New York University. So we're about to get serious. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Um, very glad you agreed to sit down and talk with me. I'm super excited to discuss some physics. So, your research, um, you work at the intersection of particle physics, which is the science of the very small, mm-hmm. cosmology, which is the science of the very large, and string theory, which tries to unify everything. Is that a fair assessment? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty I like much. to tell people I work on very, very small things and very, very large things, but nothing mm. in between. Nothing in between? Yeah. So, and theoretical physics in general as a field, uh, it, to me, it seems like it's very, it, it's different from most other scientific disciplines in that there's a lot of, a lot of thinking and a lot of writing. And I, I mean, my background mostly is in biology and of course there's thinking and writing, but then you go into the lab and you do stuff, right? In theoretical physics, theoretical physics itself, if we isolate it, it, there's not much doing, right? It's just a lot of, just it's, a lot of deep thinking, Right, it's pure yeah. theory. I think mm-hmm. physics is the only science that has this split between theory and experiment. There's, there's not really theoretical biology. Right. There's starting to be <laughs> starting some to be, analysis yeah. of genetic data, that kind of thing. But, mm-hmm. but basically, biology is in the lab, and chemistry, the closest thing to theory are, are simulations, numerical simulations people do. Mm-hmm. But still, it's really based on, uh, on lab work. So in physics, for a long time, there's been a divide, and it's because physicists like to work on easy problems actually. Really? It, it's a little counterintuitive, but we, we like to work on the simplest thing we can, and because the problems we work on are actually relatively simple, we can understand them mathematically without necessarily having to do a lab experiment for everything. Mm-hmm. And that's turned out to be a very powerful tool, because when you understand simple things, you can sometimes understand complicated things. So a lot of the most famous physicists that you've heard of, Einstein, Feynman, uh, these were theoretical physicists. They never did any experiments. They never had a lab. They had no training in uh, experimental physics. They just did, they applied mathematics to physical problems, and they were able to make a lot of progress that way. So that, 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 that's the area I'm in. Um, and it's, these days, there's really just two kinds of physicists. There, there are a few people who, who kind of bridge the divide, but, but mostly people are either theorists or experimentalists. So. How how often do you find yourself working with experimentalists? Is that because I mean, um, once you formulate a theory, right, you, you want it to be tested, right? You want yes. data for it. You want. So how often do you find yourself working with experimentalists? Well, m- most of the theories that I've formulated that could be tested had to do with cosmology, with astrophysics. Mm-hmm. And in astrophysics, it's a little bit different. The analog of experimentalists are observers, so people who go and operate telescopes. Generally, they don't actually look through them anymore. There's a a computer that looks through them, but, but they operate them, they tell, tell the telescope where to look and so forth. So, um, so there's observers, then there's people who analyze data, um, so they take the data from these telescopes and they run it through uh, numerical algorithms, and then there's the theorists who come up with theories that could be tested. So I'm really, in, on the astrophysics side of the coin, I'm, I'm, I'm in that third category. So I interact with the people who analyze data, not all the time, but fairly regularly. I don't interact with observers very often. Um, so, so there's even kind of three layers there. And the same thing is true for particle physics. There's the people who actually build the machines, who build the accelerators, accelerator physicists they're called. Mm-hmm. Then there's the people who build the detectors and analyze the data that comes out of them. Those are called experimental particle physicists. And then there's the theorists who propose theories that could be tested. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm in that last category. So I would interact with people who are doing data analysis, but not so much with the people who are really getting their hands dirty and, and building the machinery. Got it. So if I, if I understand your research a little bit, so the Large Hadron Collider, so they built this particle accelerator, and the goal uh, with it, I mean, of course, we've all heard about the Higgs boson and... and uh, and stuff, but so the goal with it was to to reach energies or energies close to, if not, uh, you know, exactly at uh, energies that were present sometime a short time after the Big Bang to kind of see what was going on, right? That's that, what they sometimes say. But that's what they say. It's not really the goal of the LHC. The goal of the Large Hadron Collider was really to discover the Higgs. 
that was the goal. That was the goal. Oh, okay. We but now that they've maybe accomplished, is that it? Or? Well, that's a good question, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so the thing is, we didn't know for sure the Higgs was there. Mm-hmm. So, what we did know for sure was that something had to be there. There was a breakdown in the theory. If there was nothing there, the theory would become mathematical nonsense. So, that probably can't happen. Which means something has to be there. If it wasn't the Higgs, it had to be something else that would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. Now that we've discovered the Higgs, the question is, is there something else besides that? And we really don't know. There's not as strong of a reason to believe that there must be something else okay. as there was to believe that there had to be something. In other words, now that we found the Higgs, it could be that that's all there is and we're not going to find anything more, at least not at the LHC. That's not a very cheerful prospect, but it's possible. They're about to restart at a higher energy, and they're going to run for another couple of years at least. So there's a lot of opportunity, if there's something more, to find it. But we really don't know. If there's a lot of uncertainty at this point. You know, it's not so different from, well, if you're an astronomer and you point your telescope in a direction no one's looked in the past, you don't know what you're going to find. It's sort of a, it's right. a stab in the dark. You might find nothing interesting, but you might find something really novel. Mm-hmm. That's the, the status we're at now. So they had their big success. They did what they, were, what they intended to do. But it could be that there's something uh, unexpected and really interesting just around the corner. Are there any... Is, is string theory something that you can use uh, a particle accelerator to test? Is that... Um, well, I wish the answer was yes, and it's possible that it is. The reason I can't give you a completely definite answer is that we don't understand string theory very well at all. Okay. And it's... <laughs> it, there are some <laughs> If versions... the scientists that are formulating this theory don't really understand it... We don't. I was going to ask yeah. you, how would you explain this to a layperson? So, well, I can, explain, you... I can explain some things about it, yeah. Okay. But one of the things we don't know, and it's a huge uncertainty, is what the energy scale is where string theory starts to become important. So one way to think about string theory is that particles are um, fundamentally one-dimensional objects, strings, rather than points. Mm-hmm. Zero dimensional points. And I've, uh, if I could just interject, sure. I that's something that I've thought about. Like, how, of course, I don't understand or know the math behind it that went, went into um, coming to. How do you come to string? Like vibrating strings. Why not mm-hmm. vibrating balls or like something? Mm-hmm. Why strings? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. The interesting thing is that it turns out that in string theory there are other objects. There are what we call membranes or in general d brains, mm-hmm. which are objects with more than one dimension. And there are even point particles. Um, there are zero brains, at least in some versions of the theory. And that all just comes out of the mathematical structure of it without anybody asking for it. It's, it's just, it just pops out. Um, why did we start with strings is a long story. It's not that someone sat down and said, I want to write down a theory of strings. Someone sat down and said, this was Gabriele Veneziano, he said, I want to write down a formula for a type of particle scattering that has certain properties that look like they... They would, be, um, they would match data that he was trying to explain. And he just guessed a, a, a formula for, for, uh, for, for this particular type of scattering process in particle physics. He wrote it down, and no one knew. It looked beautiful. It had a lot of nice properties, but no one knew what it was or where it would really come from until eventually they understood that it was actually a string scattering amplitude. And so that was the beginning of it. And he wasn't trying to explain everything, People talk about string theory now as a theory of everything. He wasn't trying to explain everything. He was trying to explain a particular subset of the physics that's now part of the standard model of particle physics. He was trying to explain oh, okay. the strong interactions that bind quarks oh, together. Oh, okay, okay. So it was really a roundabout sort of just luck. I mean, he, he wrote this down for good reasons, but they had little to do with what we now uh, care about string theory for, and it just turned out to be a string theory scattering amplitude. That's what started it off. So it's not. it wasn't like a... Someone sat down and said, "Oh, let's think about strings and, and quantize them." It really didn't happen that way. Okay. All right. So now, if you can make an attempt to give a bit of an explanation of what string theory is, that would be great. Sure. So, so, so I was starting to say that one way to think about it is that the, the particles that we think of as point particles, so particles like electrons, also massless particles like photons, that those are actually made out of these objects, these strings, and. The implications of that are that, um, so str- strings have a tension. They have an energy that's proportional to their length because they're, they're one-dimensional. So they have a length. They don't have a width or a breadth, but they have a length. Mm-hmm. And the energy of a string is proportional to its length. So it's length times a, times a, a thing we call the tension. So um, nature likes to reduce the energy as much as possible. So if you just took a string and you sort of plunked it down somewhere, it would shrink as much as it could. 
And if the tension is very, very high, then it shrinks down to such a small size that you can't distinguish it from a point particle. Mm. You would need a very powerful microscope or something like that to be able to see that it wasn't actually a point particle. When I see simulations of strings, they're always connected, right? So they're always... Um, good question. Right. So are they? in the original version, they were all closed, but I mentioned we discovered that there were these other extended objects in the theory, um, objects with more than one dimension, or well, actually there's zero-dimensional, one-dimensional, two-dimensional, there's objects of all different dimensions called mm -hmm. brains. Mm -hmm. Strings can end on brains. Okay. And so there are open strings, but the endpoints are always on another object. Okay. Um, you can never have a string just sort of floating around freely in space that doesn't end on anything. Um, one way to understand that, if you know a little bit about electromagnetism, is the string is like a flux tube. It's like a bundle of electric flux lines. Mm -hmm. And that flux has to go somewhere. It can't just, right. can't just stop. Um, so, um, right. so, so, so particles are made out of these strings, but you need a really powerful microscope to be able to notice that, at least if the tension is very high. And so one of the big uncertainties is we don't know how high the tension is. We think that it's... Well, one of the, the reasons people are excited about string theory is that it, it uh, reproduces Einstein's theory of gravity. And again, this is something that no one expected. This had nothing to do with the original motivation that Veneziano had in writing down this amplitude. It wasn't realized for quite a few years. But when the theory was analyzed more closely, it was discovered that it contains a graviton, meaning the particle that uh, mediates the force of gravity. And so it's a quantum theory of gravity, and it's the only one we have. That's why people are so excited about it. Mm. And it's something completely different from anything anybody thought of before. It's a theory of strings. It's very different. Is, is a Higgs a graviton or no? The Higgs is a scalar particle. Okay. In fact, it's the first scalar particle ever discovered. So scalar particle means it doesn't have any spin. It looks the same when you rotate it. Oh, wow. So a particle with some spin, if you think about an electromagnetic wave that's polarized, you know when you wear polarized glasses, uh, reflected light gets uh, reduced a lot compared to normal light. That's because reflected light is polarized. The electric field of that light is oscillating in a certain direction as, as a result of the fact that it reflected off, say, a horizontal surface like a road or the ocean. So your glasses are polarized in the opposite way, so they don't let through that light very well. And the reason there's a polarization for light is that the particle that particle of light called the photon is a spin one particle. It has a, a spin. It doesn't look the same when you rotate it. It, it oscillates in a certain plane. Uh, the Higgs boson is a scalar. It doesn't have any polarization or any spin. And the graviton is actually a spin two particle, which means it oscillates in two directions at the same time. It's sort of like, um, well, if you imagine a circle getting deformed into an ellipse and then squashed into a, yeah, this is really hard to explain in words, but it's a, <laughs> it's a kind of a wiggly squashing motion. That's what, that's what gravity does to objects. Mm. Uh, gravity waves, at least, do to objects. Mm. It's like, like a tidal force. It's the same sort of thing that causes the tides. Mm. Anyway, uh, so, so Higgs is a scalar. Um, and... Um, I lost track of uh, where we were. So, so. Sorry. Oh, you, you're talking about string theory and the uh, graviton as a right. Good. Part. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, gra so, so string theory contains gravity. It reproduces Einstein's theory, and it's quantum mechanical. That's the key point that people were really struggling and are still struggling to find but a way to quantize gravity without string theory. Mm -hmm. This was the only, the only, the only known uh, quantum theory of gravity. So that's that's why people are so excited about it and have been for so long. Um, Anyway, you need a powerful microscope, though, to be able to test it. But there's a big uncertainty. We don't know what the scale is. We think it's at the scale where gravity gets very strong. So it turns out if you smash things together hard enough, they'll form a black hole. So if they have enough energy, they make a black hole. But the energy that takes is way above what we have at the LHC. And so the most natural energy scale where you would see string theory effects is that scale way beyond what the LHC will probe. So that's why it's unlikely that it will test string theory. Uh, okay. But it turns out there are some versions of string theory which don't seem very likely or natural, but there are some versions where the LHC could test at least just a little bit of uh, string theory effects. So I don't think this is likely, and it's not the reason the machine was built, but, you know, if you really get lucky, it's, it's possible. Um, so is, is another way, because, so the reason they built a particle accelerator, right, it's, 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 it's to smash particles together, which is, I get, it, happens it happens naturally. All the time, right? Yes. In, in, in space. So, and then if I understand your research, what you're trying, or maybe part of what you're trying to do is use uh, cosmological data or astrophysical observations to maybe support string theory? Mm -hmm. is that, is that, uh, and so part of your research, you, you do 
Oh, another question I wanted to ask before we get to cosmic wakes, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. fascinating. How do you get? How do you go from string theory to the multiverse, or were they those theories developed independent of each other and then combined? Like, how, how, how does that work? Well, the idea of the multiverse comes out of string theory, but it but it's really independent of string theory. So, so there these ideas are related, but they're not they don't depend on each other. Um, the idea of the multiverse, at least of the kind that we'll talk about now, is is uh, is something that arises because it turns out that. In Einstein's theory of gravity, which string theory predicts, but it was there long before string theory was ever dreamed of. So in Einstein's theory of gravity, space and time are dynamical. They're not rigid, fixed things that can never change or that have some sort of predetermined structure. They're, they're, they're something that can take uh, different configurations. So uh, the, the most famous example of that is if you think about the universe as a whole, it's expanding. I'm sure you've heard about this. So the yes. Big Bang Theory says that the universe in the very... Uh, about 14 million years ago, was very small. What does it mean for the universe to be small? It means that it was curled up on itself really tightly. And uh, in the 14 billion years since then, it's expanded tremendously. And this is a way of understanding why when you look at distant galaxies, you see that they're moving away from you. And they're not just, they're not moving away from some other point. They're moving away from us as if we were at the center of the universe. Now, we're not at the center of the universe. Everybody sees the same thing. So there's mm. an analogy where there's a rubber balloon being blown up and somebody sitting somewhere in that balloon would see the rubber stretching away from them. And the further away you look, the faster the rubber is stretching. So this is a pretty good analogy. Mm-hmm. It's two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. That's its flaw. But other than that, right. it's a good analogy. Right. So space is expanding. That's what Einstein taught us. And the funny thing is that um, the expansion of space for many years until about 1999, people thought it was slowing down. And the reason is that's what Einstein's theory tells you should happen. If all you have is matter, like the stuff in galaxies, mm-hmm. planets, etc., gas, and so on, and radiation, um, like light, uh, if that's all you have, gravity is attractive. It makes things want to fall together, like the apple falls from the tree towards the center of the Earth because the Earth and the apple attract each other. So the galaxies attract each other, and that should make the expansion slow down. That's, what Einstein, that's Einstein's version of Newton's law, that uh, the expansion will slow down. But instead, we see the expansions actually speeding up. So the distance between galaxies is increasing, and the rate at which it's increasing is also increasing. So it's accelerating. Mm-hmm. It's like they're repelling each other. And this really can only be explained by what we call vacuum energy. It turns out that if there's another form of energy besides matter and radiation, if space itself, empty space, has an energy, that will make the, universe, that will make the expansion of the universe go faster and faster. So... That's what we think is going on. We think there's a vacuum energy. And this has all sorts of crazy and bizarre implications. It means that the universe is going to expand forever. It's never going to turn around. And not only will it expand forever, it'll grow exponentially. Mm. If it gets twice as big in some amount of time, in that same amount of time, it'll get four times as big, and then eight times as big, and then 16 times as big. It's like a, co- it's like a population growing and never, never slowing down, right. never running out of resources. Because it keeps making more space. More space means more vacuum energy, because more space... Mm-hmm. more vacuum. Um, and, and, and so the expansion just keeps, uh, keeps doubling and doubling. So um, in a situation like that, uh, you can have, well, you'll have this enormous universe after a while, and there's going to be a lot of variation from place to place just because it's so big. And maybe the easiest way to see that is, imagine that the vacuum energy isn't an absolutely fixed thing. But there's, let's say, two possible values for it. Maybe one of them is really high, and it was around in the early universe, and one of them is pretty low, and that's what we see now. Every now and then, you're going to produce a region with high energy, just by random fluctuation, by random chance. So even after most of the universe is in this low energy phase, every now and then, a region of high energy will appear. And if it appears, it'll expand even faster than everything around it. So it will reproduce itself. Mm. And then it will produce regions of low energy. But those will very rarely produce regions of high energy again. And so you end up in the situation where you never come to an equilibrium. You just keep expanding. You keep producing um, every possibility. Large values of the vacuum energy, small values of the vacuum energy. And if you could somehow move around in this space, which you can't because you, you're limited by the speed of light. But if you could somehow move around in this space, you'd discover that where you live is uh, not really typical of the whole space. So where we find ourselves... We're in some region of very low vacuum energy. It's very low. It took until 1999 to discover it because it's so small. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But if we could move around, then if there's at least one other value of the vacuum energy, we'd find some other region of the universe where you have that. And that would look totally different. It would be expanding incredibly rapidly. It couldn't have any atoms in it. If the vacuum energy is so high that it blows apart atoms even, that it wouldn't even contain atoms. It probably wouldn't contain any kind of life. It wouldn't be very interesting. But it would be totally different than what we see around us. So this completely contrary to what everybody always... Everybody always thought the universe is the same everywhere because the part of it we can see looks pretty much the same everywhere. So they said, oh, even the part we can't see should be the same as what we can see. Instead, here, this says, no, there's regions that look totally different than what we see around us. That's the multiverse. That's the simplest version of the multiverse. Hmm. So as you can see, it, it doesn't require string theory. It just requires okay. a couple different values of the vacuum energy. But string theory predicts that there are different values of the vacuum energy. Oh, In fact, it predicts there are lots of different values of it. So just to clarify, when you say vacuum energy, are you describing dark energy? Is that what that is? Yeah, okay. dark energy is the name we gave to the stuff that's responsible for making the expansion accelerate. Okay. And the simplest explanation for that is that it's a vacuum energy. Okay. Although, again, we don't know that for sure. Mm. It's hard to know anything for sure in science. It could be something else that we don't understand, but uh, we think it's vacuum energy. So the vacuum energy is energy in empty space. Yes. Is mm -hmm. So is... Empty space, what's between universes? Is, is that where the multiverse... Well, yeah. You could just really just think of the... So this term multiverse is a little confusing because yeah. how can you have more than one universe, the universe? So let's say there's just one universe, but within the universe, there's different regions. Okay. And in those different regions, physics is different. Kind of like if you have a lake that's partly frozen and partly not. Mm -hmm. So then there's ice and there's water, and there's some edge where you go from ice to water. So it's like that. You've got this big universe, and there's one region where the vacuum energy is small, and there's another region where it's large, and there's some boundary between them that if you could travel faster than the speed of light, you could cross and go see what it looks like on the other side. Mm -hmm. But in string theory, it's not just ice and water. There's actually a huge number of different phases. Each one's got a different vacuum energy. Not just different vacuum energy. It's got different physics in many ways. So, for example, the string tension can be different that I mentioned, so the size of strings. The, um, the spectrum of particles can be different. Even the number of dimensions, in a sense I can explain if you want, can be different. Please. So, yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah. So, 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 okay, how can the number of dimensions be different? Um, well, you could say it's not different, but the thing about string theory is that there's extra dimensions. So this is one of the right. odd... String theory predicts ten, ten dimensions yeah. plus one of time? T um, it predicts nine dimensions plus, plus one, one of time, time. Okay. but there's another thing called M-theory... Mm -hmm. which string theory is believed to be a special case of, which predicts 10 dimensions plus one of time. Okay. Now, you may say, how? I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. How can you have different numbers of dimensions? What does that even mean? And the, the, the reason that it's, again, not as clear as you might think how many dimensions there are is that when the dimensions are not infinitely extended, they're, not, they have, they're very different than what you're used to thinking about. You're used to thinking about a dimension as a direction you can take a walk in. You, know, you can go this way or that way or you can go up or down. Right. Right? And, and, and that's the right way to think about it. But, um, but you are much smaller than the dimension. In other words, you could walk for a long distance north before you come back to where you started. On Earth, you would eventually come back to where you started if you insisted on walking north. Well, then you'd be going south and then you'd be going north again. But you come back to where you started if you just walk in a straight line. So that's like a compact dimension in a sense. Of course, that's just the surface of the Earth. But pretend that was the universe for a minute. That's an example of a compact dimension. Still, it's a direction you can take a walk in because you're much smaller than it is. But now it's a little hard to imagine, but suppose the distance you had to go to come back to where you started was really small instead of really large, much smaller than you. In fact, much smaller than the size of an atomic nucleus in your body. Then you can't take a walk in it. What would that even mean? And in fact, everything about you would be kind of smeared over that direction. It would just fill that direction, and you would never even notice it was there. And so if you had that and you had the three dimensions you're used to, that world would look exactly like the one that we live in. And the only way you could detect that this uh, dimension exists would be if you could access something small enough that it can move around in it. So you, again, you need a microscope or something that's powerful enough. When I say microscope, I really mean a particle that's small enough that it can fit into this, into this, uh, into this extra dimension and not just be spread all over it. So, so that's the story in string theory. You've got to have these extra dimensions, but they can be curled up as small as you want, and, and typically they'd be curled up at the same length scale that defines this tension. So the, the length scale where, where you can resolve particles into strings would probably also be the length scale where um, you could see that there's these extra dimensions. Okay. And in fact, in the end, the presence of these extra dimensions and the fact that there are strings just boils down to saying that 
there'd be a lot of, well, maybe we don't need to get into that, but if you have a guitar string, there's a lot of harmonics. You can pluck it, and it'll mm -hmm. vibrate in the, in the fundamental, but there's a lot of harmonics. When you have one of these compact dimensions with strings in them or wrapped around them, you end up having a whole spectrum of these kind of harmonics, which, from our point of view, would look like really massive particles, really heavy particles with lots of energy that are very hard to produce, which is why we don't know about them right now. But when we first started to see this, like, for instance, if the LHC could just barely reach the energy scale where it could start to see this, the telltale sign would be a particular set of massive particles, heavier than the Higgs, which would have uh, certain characteristics, so they'd be, their, their energies would be spaced in a certain way. That would be the first sign. But um, anyway, so that, 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 that's the deal with these extra dimensions. They're curled up. That's why you don't notice them. Um, and so, um, so how can that number, how can the number of dimensions change? Well, that number, let's say nine, nine spatial dimensions plus one of time, that number wouldn't change as you moved around in the universe. But the number of them that are large could change. So if you could picture a tube, like a cylinder, which is long, but very small around, like it's a very, very thin tube, okay? And you're, you're an ant or something living on this tube, but you're bigger than than the small direction. So you can't really walk around the tube in the circular direction because you're bigger than it. You don't really mm. fit in that direction. You can just walk left or right. But then you can imagine that if you were to walk far enough to the left, all of a sudden the tube would grow and get a lot bigger in radius. And so now you could walk around it. So that's the kind of thing that can happen as you move around from one of these phases to another. You can have a small dimension here, which over there might be large. So that means if you could somehow go over there, and again, you couldn't, you couldn't exist, you would dissolve into nothing as soon as you got there because the physics would be totally different. But if somehow you could make it over there and observe what was happening, you might see a world in which there are four spatial dimensions that are large, or even up to nine. Um, so, um, so the number of dimensions can even change as you go around in this multiverse. So it really is very diverse. It's a very diverse place. But the speed of light is consistent throughout, or we don't, there's no way to test that, right? Well, we, we think that Lorentz invariance, which is the symmetry that Einstein discovered that predicted that the speed of light would be constant, is a fundamental symmetry of nature. It's part of string theory. It's built into it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the speed of light would be constant. But you wouldn't really have light necessarily over there. You'd have other forms of massless radiation. Even here in standard physics, it's not only light that moves at the speed of light. Gravity waves, mm -hmm. which, well, we haven't detected for sure, but they're almost certainly there. Those move at the speed of light. Anything with zero mass moves at the speed of light. Um, so it's really a characteristic of the laws of physics more than it is a specific to light. It's, it's, a, it's a statement about how things move when they don't have any mass. And that, we believe, would be true everywhere, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, quick question, just we're speaking of light particles, photons, not having mass. If, so let's talk about black holes. So, of a Black hole is just a region of... It's definitely not nothingness, right? It's a region of extremely dense space. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and it, for lack of a better word, just sucks everything towards the singularity, the center of mm -hmm. itself, and including light. Mm -hmm. But to have an attraction between two entities, it's usually dependent on the mass mm -hmm. of the two mm -hmm. entities. Mm -hmm. If light is a massless particle... How does a black hole attract it? Right. That's a good question. So, actually, in Einstein's, so in, in Newton's theory, Newton wouldn't have known whether light should be attracted by black holes. Of course, he didn't know about black holes. But you're, you could ask your same question about just planets or stars. Light isn't only attracted to black holes, it's attracted to the sun. Um, and in mm -hmm. fact, we've it's hard to observe light being attracted to black holes because the closest black hole is really far away. It's very easy to observe light being attracted to the sun. There's a famous experiment that was done just after Einstein formulated his theory where uh, during an eclipse, so you could see the stars that, that are near the sun that normally you wouldn't be able to see during the day because the sun is too bright. You could see that their apparent positions were a little displaced because the light from them was getting bent as it passed around the sun. So, so gravity definitely affects light. Newton didn't know whether that was true or not, um, for the reason you say, basically. Um, but what Einstein taught us is that gravity doesn't actually act on mass, it acts on energy. And it acts on all forms of energy in exactly the same way. 
So mass is one form of energy, E equals mc squared. Mm -hmm. So energy and mass are, uh, ma mass is a form of energy, but it's not the only form of energy. Another form of energy is the kind of energy that a, a little bit of light carries, a photon or an, just a classical electromagnetic wave. That carries energy as well. Mm -hmm. After all, you can, um, you can have a wireless charging system for your razor or your cell phone or something like that. There's no physical connection but some kind of electromagnetic radiation is passing between them and it's carrying energy, it's charging up the device. So light carries energy, it just doesn't have mass. And since gravity acts on energy, it acts on light. Um, and, and, and Einstein's theory lets you predict the um, effect that it has and, and the angle that light will get bent as it passes close to something like the sun. If it gets too close to a black hole, it will actually fall in, as you say. So the gravity of a black hole is so strong that even light can't get out of it once it falls in past the event horizon. Okay. All right. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so now if we can jump back to your research, mm -hmm. would you primarily, well, not maybe not primarily, but this is just some of the stuff that I've uh, read over from what you do. Mm -hmm. Cosmic wakes. Right. What are cosmic wakes? So when I got interested in string theory, I loved it for how elegant it was, and I wanted to understand fundamental physics, I wanted to know, you know what's the world really like, um, and, and string theory seemed like the way to go, but I didn't like the fact that it was so hard to test. Um, it didn't look like the LHC had much of a chance for the reasons I already explained. So how are you going to test string theory? What are you going to do? Where can you get enough energy to smash things together hard enough that they're going to produce interesting stuff like strings, or how are you going to get a microscope powerful enough that you can see down to these tiny distance scales where strings become important? And I thought, well, the, 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 the universe is like a giant microscope. Why? Because it expanded by this huge factor. So when you look at something that's very large today, like, let's say, I don't know, the structure of galaxies, you've got bunches, you know, millions, actually, much more than that, billions of galaxies, and, and they're arranged in a certain way. And that arrangement is a reflection of the way things were when the universe was much smaller. So the universe is like a gigantic magnifying glass that blew things up by a huge factor. So maybe you can use that to test something. Well, that's an interesting idea, but can you actually do it? And it turns out that in the multiverse, so, so string theory predicts that there are all these phases, and, and these phases are around, um, and, and they don't just sit around, they make transitions, what are called phase transitions. So you may have a very rapidly expanding phase with high vacuum energy, which suddenly decays, not everywhere, but in a small region, to a phase with lower energy, or even higher energy can happen, but uh, usually it's to lower energy. Since we live in a region that's got very small vacuum energy, it took us until 1999 to even notice it, um, that is expanding much more slowly than a region with large vacuum energy, because vacuum energy makes things expand more and more rapidly. So the universe is probably full, mostly, of things with high vacuum energy, and every now and then they produce these bubbles of low vacuum energy, and we're in one of them. So we live in a giant bubble, um, but not that giant. Uh, so this is where the concept of the multiverse, a bubble is a... A universe in the multiverse. That's, That's where right. that comes from. That's oh, right. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, sense. yeah, exactly. So, so we're in this in this bubble universe, if if you want, um, and and we're surrounded by this this sort of parent state with much higher vacuum energy. And one thing we know for sure is that if you accept this part of it at least, one thing we know for sure is that there must be other bubbles like ours because this parent state keeps expanding, it keeps reproducing itself, and if it decayed once into our face, it could decay again into our face, and probably. According to string theory, there, there are tons of different phases, so probably it's much more likely to decay into some different phase than into ours. I mean, any given decay is unlikely to be to ours, it'll be to something else probably, but in any case, it'll be producing all of these bubbles. Most of these bubbles never talk to each other because they're surrounded by this parent phase, which is expanding so rapidly that it keeps them apart, it keeps them from running into each other. But occasionally, if they're produced close enough together, um, they will run into each other. One thing I should explain is that once these phases get produced, they want to expand because they have lower energy. Something with lower energy likes to expand into something with higher energy. It's, again, nature wanting to lower its energy. So once these phases are produced, they grow. Um, and so if they're produced close enough together, if two bubbles happen to form close enough together, they'll collide with each other. What happens next is an interesting story, and I've spent uh, a number of years now working out the implications of that. Um, it's a long story with many details, so I won't go into all of them. But basically, what uh, it boils down to is... If we're one of these two bubbles and another one collides with us, that is an enormous perturbation. This collision has a huge amount of energy, 
But it also happens very early in the history of our universe. When I say our universe, I'm not talking about the multiverse, I'm talking about our bubble. Okay. So it happens not long after the Big Bang of that bubble. The Big Bang, by the way, is the moment the bubble forms in this theory. It's not a singularity. You can ask about what came before the Big Bang. You can ask about what's outside the universe because the universe you is can. in this bubble. Yeah, so so in, in string theory in the multiverse, you can ask what happened before. Absolutely. The and okay. it has a perfectly well-defined answer. There's nothing... Okay, wow. Right. So we'll get into that after. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, right, so when these, these clips happen, they're happening, from our point of view, just after the Big Bang and, and from some point far away. So even though a huge amount of energy is released in this collision, by the time it gets to us today, it's been diluted because our universe, our bubble has grown so much, the space around us has stretched so much that that, as we call it, cosmic wake, that perturbation of the collision as it propagates across the universe, gets weaker and weaker. It's like, okay, a big cruise ship goes by, it makes a huge wave, but if you're 10 miles away, maybe there's just a little swell. Um, so this cosmic wake propagates across the universe, it gets stretched and diluted, and so by the time it would arrive here, it's weak, but we might still have a chance of seeing it. And that's where the data analysis comes in. When people look at cosmology, one of the things they measure is the distribution of galaxies on large scales, also something called the cosmic microwave background. That's really the sharpest probe we have of the early universe. Um, but all these things are basically maps of the way things were arranged in the early universe. And if you had this wake, it's like you have a calm ocean, but this wave moving across it, it'll make a ripple in this structure and it'll have a certain imprint on these observables in cosmology. So people have been searching for that. Um, a number of groups now have searched for the signal we predicted. <coughs> Unfortunately, although they found things that looked consistent with it, um, the data was too noisy to know for sure whether they would be, whether they could actually be these cosmic wakes. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the aspects of this kind of work is that it's really hard to predict how likely we are to be able to see this because we don't know how strong the signal would be or how common it is. Actually, we can estimate both of those things, but they end up, the estimate is, is the product of numbers that we don't know, so it's, it's not a very useful estimate. So we don't know how likely we are to be able to see them. And it's quite possible that everything I've just said is completely correct and these cosmic wakes are there, but we'll never see them because they're so weak that they won't be observable. They'll be lost in the noise. Or that they're rare enough that we happen to be in a part of the universe where there aren't any yet. We'd have to live another 100 billion years to have a chance to observe it. So it's quite possible that we'll never see them. On the other hand, if we do, it's something incredibly exciting. It means that the universe is not what we thought at all. Um, and it would be a proof that the multiverse is real. So I think it's worth doing. But, you know, you always have this uh, strange issue hanging over your head that might turn out that we never see it and then you don't know why. You know, is it because the idea was wrong or is it because it's too faint or what? Uh, so, so people are looking, but but uh, nothing definite so far. So you said all that a little too casually. <laughs> so if if let's say, but there are anomalies in in yes. the, the cosmic microwave background. That's what you look to. Yeah. Uh, to to determine what, what what to determine whether or not it's a cosmic wake is still the issue, right? Yeah, and, and to determine whether the anomalies are really anomalies or just okay, just random events that happen to look fluky. Uh, okay. I mean. But if it turns out they're cosmic wakes, that would kind of change that everything. That would be, our... I would say. There was a, something called the Copernican Revolution where we learned that, that the Earth goes around the sun rather than the Earth being the center of everything. I think in some ways this would be a revolution on that order. It would mean that the region we live in is this tiny bubble embedded in this huge thing that you know we're even smaller than we thought we were before. It's like another existential crisis, right? <laughs> so, so I think it would yeah. be a very. I think it would have a huge impact on uh, on the way people think about the world. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's why it's it's worth doing, even if the odds are small that you're going to see it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from my point of view, I mean, here I am spending a long time working out these signals, and I have no guarantee. In fact, it's probably rather unlikely that it's ever going to pay off. So that's uh, it's it's like buying a lottery ticket, but spending a lot of time doing it. So, I don't mind. It's a lot of fun. But it's, it's an interesting... Uh, it's not like most kinds of scientific research where, where you're sure to make steady progress. Mm -hmm. So, that's why this isn't the only thing I work on. Oh, okay. uh, but, uh, anyway, so, th so that's, that's the story with the cosmic wakes. And there is a lot of exciting data coming up. There's a satellite which has released some of its data, but not all, called Planck. Mm -hmm. It's a European satellite. Um, and one of the things they haven't released yet 
is a polarization map of the cusp migrate background. So it's an extra, it's a whole new data set. It's a whole new set of information about the early universe. And uh, we made some predictions for the effects of these cosmic breaks on polarization. And so people are waiting, they're sort of uh, uh, gearing up to look for that. Um, Polarization of a specific type of radiation? Yeah, microwave radiation? These are, these, are, these are micro, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so if you want to know where this comes from, if you think about the, the inside of the sun, so that's a, a hot plasma, it's called. Um, instead of having hydrogen gas, you have just protons, the, the nucleus of, uh, of hydrogen and electrons flying around. It's so hot that, that, um, that uh, uh, everything is sort of ionized. Um, and the whole universe was like that if you go back far enough. Because uh, if you go back in time, the universe gets denser and hotter. So if you go far enough back, it was pretty much like the inside of the sun. At that time, light couldn't propagate through the universe because there were so many free charges, so many free protons and electrons, that a photon would just scatter like crazy, just like inside a solid wall or inside the sun. It takes a million years, by the way, for a photon to diffuse from the, right, say, center of the sun to the surface because it bounces off stuff so many times. Um, it would take a tiny fraction of a second for it to propagate through it if the sun was transparent, but it, it's a solid object. So photons just bounce around like crazy. That was what the universe was like. And then it cooled down to a point where all the hydrogen, uh, where, where protons captured electrons, so everything became neutral. So hydrogen atoms formed. Um, and after that time, the universe was like a piece of glass, almost totally transparent. So the light that was around then, which is about the same as sunlight, um, suddenly started propagating freely through the universe. Like the universe was full of sunshine, just propagating in all directions. Mm -hmm. But then it expanded by about a factor of a thousand. And that means, that means that the wavelength of that light was stretched by about a factor of a thousand. Mm -hmm. So it turns visible light that you could have seen with your eye into, into microwaves. Right. And that's the cosmic microwave background. And that light is polarized uh, a little bit because of reflections. It's actually a little bit like uh, the reason why polarized sunglasses are useful that light occasionally scattered off of some stray electrons that happened to still be around. So some of it scattered. And that scattered light got polarized mm -hmm. by the scattering. And so when you measure that, you're measuring really the density of those electrons more than anything. But, but you're measuring another piece of information about how things were arranged in the early universe. And so that, um, that data set could contain... Um, confirmation of one of these one of these cosmic waves. Fingers crossed. But it's given that we haven't conclusively seen it yet, it's not that likely that the you know the next data set is gonna uh, is gonna confirm it. There just I mean I'm sure I'm not even think I'm not thinking of any of them, but it just seems like there's so many variables when you're when you're when you, let's say you're using this polarization data mm -hmm. to because you're using it to probe for cosmic waves, right? Mm -hmm. to, to get another picture yes. of what the universe is like at a certain time. That's right. And I feel, it, I feel like, just like, just like the anomalies that you might see in the cosmic microwave background that we have, like it could kind of be anything. Yeah, so, so how do you know that it was produced by a yeah. bubble collision? Right. Um, so the thing that gives you some handle on that is that in cosmology, there's what's called an event horizon, just like there is for a black hole. There's a distance beyond which one event can't affect another one. And that's because it takes time for light to propagate from one point to another, and light moves as fast as anything can. So if I beam a flashlight at some distant star, it won't arrive there for, uh, for many years, um, if at all. But if it arrives, it'll take years to get there. So distant events can't affect each other. It's not until much later in the history of the universe. And when you look at the cosmic microwave background, you're seeing a slice of the universe as it was at an early time. And you're seeing many, many, many points that are disconnected from each other in the sense that they couldn't have influenced each other. Mm -hmm. So if you see something that cuts across a big part of that, it couldn't have been something that happened after the Big Bang, basically. It has to be something that came from outside the universe. Huh. Or maybe something that happened much, much more recently, and so it just looks big because it's close. It's called a foreground. Like if there's just some cloud over your telescope or something, okay, it'll look big, but that's just because it's close to you. But if you know that it's coming, that it's really primordial, that it was really there in the early universe, it couldn't have been something that happened between the Big Bang and now. It had to be before the Big Bang or from outside or something. That's why these are actually rather uh, conclusive signals of, uh -huh. of, of uh, some structure. 
outside the universe because they're 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 huge. There's no physics that can produce those that we know of other than something like this. Also, there, you can make pretty specific predictions for exactly what the shape is. Um, it's not just that there's some sort of vague wake. That there's a quite quantitative prediction of what it should look mm. like. That doesn't have that many variables. It has a few, but there's not many variables that uh, that characterize it. So, if the signal was there and bright enough, we would know. Okay. And I think people would be convinced. But um, unfortunately, it may turn out that it's not. So. Okay. And that's science, right? That's, that's science. Yeah. 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 But. So you mentioned that the this 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 framework this theory allows for there to be a before the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. So what? How, how does that come about? Right. So 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 the, so the Big Bang as we understand it now, we kind of take as the beginning of everything ever, exactly. the beginning of time, the beginning of space, the beginning of if there's just one universe, right? Our universe. So if I understand correctly, you said that the Big Bang would be the beginning of our bubble universe yes. in the larger mm -hmm. whatever we want to call it. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, 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 so let's, let's, let's back away from the multiverse for a minute. So what do we really know about the Big Bang? What we know is that the universe is expanding now. We know gravity is attractive. Um, uh, these repulsive forces that I mentioned that make the expansion accelerate are only relevant when there's a lot of volume. So vacuum energy only matters when there's a lot of volume. Um, that means if you go back in time, it was completely negligible. It didn't matter at all. At least the amount of vacuum energy that we see today doesn't matter at all. So if you go back in time, the universe was contracting, because if you go forward in time, it's expanding. And if you go back in time, it was contracting faster and faster, because gravity got stronger and stronger, more and more attractive going back into the past. So there's a finite amount of time that you have to go back before everything was just crunched on top of everything, just tracing it back, like running the movie back in time. Um, and, and so that point, that point in time, about 14 billion years ago, is what we call the Big Bang. But we don't really know what happened at that point, or even just after it, because if you go far enough back, the energy densities and, and, um, and just matter densities get so large that the laws of physics we know are correct by doing experiments on Earth simply don't apply. So the LHC does have relevance to that in the sense that it tells us something about the laws of physics in the early universe, but it still has a finite energy, so it doesn't tell us what happened if you go arbitrarily far back in the past. So we don't know what happened at the Big Bang. When people say it was the beginning of time, they're just guessing. There's a kind of dogma which always irritated me a little bit that people insist that that has to be the... We don't know. We yeah. don't know what happened before. Mm -hmm. um, our laws, the laws that we have confidence in simply break down. And not only that, and I didn't realize this, in fact, until I started working on these uh, bubble collisions, but not only... Not only is it the case that if you just go far enough back and nothing interferes, you'll come to a point where the known laws break down and you don't know what's before. You can even have a theory like one of these bubble nucleations in an existing universe where you still have pretty good control over the physics. It's speculative physics, but it doesn't go... It's not beyond... Um, it's very closely related to things that we know are correct, to standard phase transitions that you see in ordinary materials. You can have a, a theory like that with that sort of phase transition where um, where the universe never gets uh, arbitrarily dense or arbitrarily hot because there was one of these phase transitions. So it's like saying, um, well, the kind of phase transitions that are closely related to this aren't that familiar to most people, but one of them would be if you take salt or sugar, take some hot water and dissolve as much as you can, keep stirring it in, stirring it in, stirring it in, until finally you can't dissolve anymore and it just sits at the bottom of the glass. Then you very carefully cool it down. And if you do that, this salt or sugar may stay dissolved in the, in the liquid, even though if you had started at that colder temperature, you wouldn't have been able to dissolve that much. Mm -hmm. Then if you just sort of tap it or disturb it a little bit, it'll suddenly crystallize out of the solution. Mm -hmm. There's a similar thing with these hand warmers. Sometimes you kind of twist them and they undergo some sort of transition and release heat. So this kind of transition can happen. When it happens, it starts at a point and then that expands rapidly. So you'd say, okay, this thing is expanding rapidly. If I go back, it's shrinking. And at some point, it's infinitely small. And then what do I do? My laws of physics break down. Right. Well, no, they don't. There was a phase transition. And, mm -hmm. and really, it happened in a finite size region. It wasn't really a point. There's no singularity. So that's the kind of thing that happens here. As you run back in time, you don't really have a Big Bang singularity. You have something else, which some other law, which takes over before you get to that point, which was that there was this phase transition where, where this bubble just appeared. And... Um, and the nice thing is that the inside of the bubble looks exactly like what we see around us. It looks like the kind of cosmology that we, that we observe. 
Um, so there's all the characteristics that led us to think that there had to be a beginning of time there. It's just not true. That there doesn't need to be. There still could be. I mean, it could be that this is wrong and that there was no phase transition and that it was the beginning of time. I'm not saying we know for sure that, but this is a, an alternative, and there's nothing particularly radical about it. It's, it's really just a phase transition of a type that we know happens in other materials. And so you're saying that the laws of physics as they were used, I guess, up until string theory came about, they break down if you try to go past uh, the, the... Does string theory provide a framework for understanding... Um, I mean, yeah, that, that's true, but, you know, e even without string theory, I mean, you could even have a relatively prosaic theory which doesn't involve strings at all, mm. but just has the right kind of phase transition where this would still happen. In other words, you could have this kind of multiverse even without string theory. You could have different values of vacuum energy. You could have first-order phase transitions. You can have bubbles that form that still look like they contain the cosmologies, that, that still contain these bubbles if you're in them. Um, and you look around, you'll see what we see. They contain the kind of cosmologies we see. So you don't even need something as exotic as string theory. Um, but but yeah, in string theory, that, that this happens. Um, but but it's not even it's not some sort of stringy magic. It's it's really just uh, just a first order phase transition. It's not that unfamiliar to anybody that studied chemistry. Uh, you know, it, it's a first order phase transition in, in something a bit more fundamental. It's not inside some kind of liquid. Mm -hmm. It's 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 in. Um, something more like the Higgs field, actually. Uh, that's a good example. The Higgs boson is, is an excitation of something called the Higgs field. Mm -hmm. And now that we've discovered it, we know that the, we're living in a phase which is not... We know that there are other phases, because that's the way the Higgs theory works. So we're living in one. It's not quite the right kind of phase to give you the sort of transition I'm talking about, but it's pretty close. Mm -hmm. So it's really not something very exotic. Um, it just requires a small extension of... The, the laws of physics that we know are correct in order to have a structure where there's a before a Big Bang. And when you say this, and when I say there's something outside the universe, I really mean there's something outside the bubble, but the bubble looks like it's the whole universe. It's what you would have thought if you didn't know about this is the whole universe. And again, I'm not saying that this is the only possibility. I'm saying we don't know, but this is a perfectly valid possibility. It doesn't require anything, any radical formulation. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions <laughs> about this in the... Yeah in the public, but also in a lot of uh, popular science books. Um, so, um, so the real story is we don't know. We don't know whether there was a before the Big Bang. It might have been the beginning of time, it might not. Um, but here's an example where it certainly wasn't. I should also add, this is not, there might be, if you went even further back, I mean, you could say, okay, so there's this bubble that formed, and that wasn't a singularity. But what if you keep going back in time? then you may eventually come to some point where there had to be some kind of singularity, or at least you need some new set of physics that isn't just this to resolve that. But the thing 14 billion years ago that we would have said is the Big Bang is not a singularity in this, in this theory. Yeah. So if we do go back far enough, you're saying that time would have a starting point, that time wasn't always... Yeah, there. there are some... And time is just so interesting, but in itself, itself like, at, at least from Einstein's theories, it just blows my mind that, I mean, that time can be warped, that it doesn't, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not, uh, you know, it's not consistent or homogeneous in any, uh, you know, stretch of the word, it, it changes. That's right. But yeah. as you get closer to the speed of light, time itself, mm -hmm. that's... Yeah, time doesn't flow at the same rate for everybody. It's a much more sort of malleable and flexible thing than we than used to think about. Um, so am I saying that there had to be a beginning if you went far enough back? There are some mathematical proofs that that had to be the case, but they depend on certain assumptions that we don't know for sure are valid. So we don't, again, the answer is we don't know. But you can't get out of that quite as easily as we can get out of the statement that the thing that people usually think of as a big bang singularity 14 million years ago in our patch, you know, that that had to be a singularity. That doesn't have to be a singularity. Mm -hmm. This other question of if you just keep going back, yeah, do you eventually have to come to a beginning? It's a different question. It's a different question, yeah. and it's harder. Um, and there's more reason to think that there had to be some kind of beginning, but it's still not conclusive. So I can give you, there's a bunch of alternatives. Um, <laughs> you know, sure that... One of the most interesting, like you may ask, how could time even begin? Like, what does that mean? Um, so what, what is time? What is time? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, in physics, it's not so different from space. That's the interesting thing. That is interesting. 
there's not a huge difference between time and space. There's a difference, obviously. If there wasn't, physics would be wrong. Because of course, the difference between time and space in the world. But actually, you, you may want to even ask yourself, what's the difference between time and space? Forget about physics for a minute. But just what would you say is the difference? I mean, I would say it's that I can remember the past, but I can't remember the future. Whereas with space, I can look in this direction and see what's over there, just like I know what's in the past because I can remember it. But I can also turn around and look in the opposite direction. So the time, at least for us, flows in one direction. It flows and it has an arrow. There's a real difference between future and past. Mm -hmm. If you blindfolded me and spun me around and put me somewhere that I didn't know where I was, I wouldn't know which direction was north and which direction was south or east or west. I'd have no idea because all directions are basically the same. Time is not like that. The future is fundamentally different from the past. Mm -hmm. So why is it like that? It's related to the fact that um, there's something called entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. And it says that, that um, things that are likely are more likely than things that are unlikely. That's really what it says. It's almost a tautology. It says that if you have, let's say, you took all the air in this room and you concentrated it in, in one corner. Um, that's a very unlikely configuration in the sense that if the air molecules are just flying around randomly, it's extremely unlikely that all of them would happen to be in one corner. If you put them there, okay, but they're not going to randomly find themselves there because each one is unlikely to be there. And when you multiply all those probabilities together, you get something that's just ridiculously unlikely. So imagine you did it. Suppose you put them all in one room or you just open a can of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, neon or something in the corner of the room. What will happen is those neon molecules will, will just spread and fill the room. And the reason they're doing that is they're much more likely. There's many more ways they could fill the room than there are ways that they can just be in the, in the corner. So unlikely things turn into likely things. That's the second one. So why do you remember the past? Because the past was unlikely. The, the past was um, a low entropy time. That's why there's an arrow of time. Because that's our understanding. That, that uh, for some reason, and we don't know the reason, but for some reason, the past was like all the air in the corner of the room. And we're living in the phase where that air is spreading out. And then there's a real difference between running, running back, which is extremely unlikely. Mm -hmm. Running forward, it's very likely. It's like if I show you a movie of something, and then I show you that movie either forwards or backwards without telling you, you, you can figure it out. Unless there's nothing going on in the movie, mm -hmm. you'll be able to figure it out. Because things just look different going forward in time than running back. You might think, oh, why, you know, maybe it's just running forward is just fundamentally different. But that's the strange thing. It's not. According to the laws of physics, running forward in time is exactly the same thing as running back in time. If it wasn't for the asymmetry and the fact that the past happened to have low entropy, but happened to have this unlikely, um, that for some reason things were in an unlikely configuration, things would look exactly symmetric going forward and back. So that, that's the strange thing, that, that physics tells us that anything that happened going forward could happen going back, which is might be unlikely. But if going forward the entropy is increasing, yeah. wouldn't going backward decrease the entropy? And right. Make it, is that, so that's the whole thing, right? So that's, that's the whole thing. And, and that's not impossible. It's just exceedingly unlikely. unlikely. Okay. So you never see it happen. Because when I say unlikely, I mean just inconceivably, ridiculously, impossibly unlikely. Like You'd have to wait way longer than the age of the universe for it to ever happen even once. <laughs> so that's why... Yeah. We think of it as an absolute law, mm -hmm. but it's not quite. It's just ridiculously unlikely. So the point that you might as well think of it as an absolute law, but but still, it, it, it leaves you with this question of, of you know why was the past in this strange special state? Why was all the gas in the corner of the room? Right. And for that, we don't have an answer. Wow, yeah. that's actually connected to this theorem of whether there has to be a singularity in the past or not. By the way, there's a strong connection between those two. So speaking of remembering the past, mm -hmm. when did you know that this is what you'd be pondering, this is what you'd be doing? How did, um, how did you get into physics? Kind of by accident. I, I, um, I, never, I never had the ambition to be a physicist when I was young. I wanted to be a, a writer or maybe a, a biologist, actually. I, I like animals a lot, so I thought maybe I should be a biologist. And then I, I decided, by the time I got to college, that I probably wanted to be a writer. But I thought, well, I'm pretty good at math and physics. Maybe I should take them and also take English classes. Because after all, if I major in English, I'll never be a physicist or a mathematician. But if I major in physics or math, I could still be a writer. Mm -hmm. um, so I took them. I took you know, a bunch of variety of classes. 
And I just really enjoyed physics and math. Took more and more. Um, and um, then I thought, well, maybe I should go to grad school. This is kind of fun. Uh, <laughs> so it was like that. It wasn't... When did I really know? Well, I guess when I was applying to grad school at that point, I decided that I was at least going to give it a, a real shot and see how it went. And I was never interested in working on... I, I'm pretty terrible with, uh, with experiments. You know, <laughs> when I walk into a lab, things break. Okay. You, you don't want me in there. So I didn't want to do experimental science. Um, I wanted to think about these kind of questions. And theoretical physics seemed like the best arena to do that. It's not, not the only one. Um, you know, philosophers get to think about big questions. Uh, biologists do too, some of their time. Um, but, um, but physics, I didn't like philosophy so much because you never know if you're right or wrong. People can right. argue yeah, the same. And, and then I'm terrible with labs. And then pure math is, is a little too abstract. It's too much like a game. I wanted something that maybe could really be tested. So this, this is what I fell into. And, and, uh, and so you attended Reed College. That's right. right. For your undergrad? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Reed College, I read, is one of, if not one of the few, one of the only, or maybe the only undergraduate institution that has its own nuclear reactor. <laughs> is that true? Uh, yes, it is true. That is true. And it's yeah. operated by undergraduates. Yes. Did you have a chance to play with it? I, I, I never worked on it. Uh, you, you have to take a course, in, uh, so it's not like you can just walk in and <laughs> start turning knobs. Which is a yeah. You have to take a course in nuclear safety, and, and I never uh, went through that course. But I've been there. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I've been near it. Um, so, yeah, it is a bit unusual. Um, but, you know, it's been operating for many years uh, without ever having a problem. It's relatively small. It's, it's a... It's, it's a what they call a research reactor, although to be honest, I'm not sure how much real research is going on. It's just... I mean, Reed College is it's a, it's a small school, right? It's a liberal arts college. That's right. But since there's something so cool there, like a nuclear reactor, like what was the science environment? Oh, on it's, it's, it's very good. It, it, it's a very liberal school when it comes to social policy, um, uh, political wing, and so forth. It's very liberal. But it's very conservative when it comes to academics. You still study, you don't study Greek and Latin anymore, but you study Greek and Latin literature at least. Uh, everybody takes these uh, sort of great books courses. Um, and the, the majors are the traditional majors. You can major in physics, you can major in English, you know, mm-hmm. but you don't have communications, things like that. So it's, it's quite, um, quite traditional. Um, and the science environment is, is very good. The, the faculty are excellent. They're really committed to teaching. There's a professor by the name of David Griffiths who's written a number of physics textbooks that are used pretty universally, um, and he, he's, he was my advisor there. He's a, he's a fantastic teacher. He's retired now, but um, so it's small. You don't you miss some of the opportunities you would have at a big university like here at NYU. Undergrads can take graduate courses if they're prepared, and they're being taught by faculty who are doing really cutting edge research, which is not quite the case at, uh, at a smaller college. So there's some trade-offs, but the advantage is you have a lot of interaction with faculty, and the faculty are very committed to education. Um, so it, I, I think it was, for me anyway, a, a good decision uh, to attend. It has a very high rate of undergraduates going on to earn PhDs, mm-hmm. one of the highest. Uh, so when you did apply for graduate school, did you at that point, did you know that you would kind of be working at the intersection of these different fields of physics? What was your PhD in? Yes, so at the beginning, no, I, I didn't know. I mean, one thing about a PhD is that you have to find an advisor who pays for you. <laughs> uh, and so you don't, you can't just say, I want to do this specific thing and do it. You, you, you have to work with someone who teaches you. Um, partly it's because they pay for you, but mainly it's because they teach you how to do research. It's sort of like an apprenticeship. So what you actually end up doing for your PhD is a bit out of your hands. I mean, of course, you can control the general area, but not the specific topic. So, yeah, working at at the intersection between string theory and cosmology, um, it's not the first thing I did in my PhD, but it was more or less the second or third thing that I started to work on mainly because my advisor said, this is interesting, it looks like there's an opportunity to test your theory of cosmology, let's think about it, and so we started working on it together. 
Um, so it, it wasn't uh, something that I, that I planned in advance. It uh, mm-hmm. came more from him. Um, that was at Stanford. Okay. Um, so, yeah, um, my PhD ended up being partly about that, um, not entirely, partly about more sort of pure string theory, partly about that. Um, and since then, I've gone in various directions, but that's always been one of the, the main themes. Because I do think, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges facing string theory is how to test it. And it seems like the early universe is probably the best opportunity to do that. That's the one place we know for sure that there were very high energies and densities. And, uh, um, and so that, that, that's a promising place to look. If you were to give a piece of advice to an undergraduate student who might be studying physics or mathematics and they eventually, they're considering going into this field. What piece of advice would you give out? I would say you should immerse yourself in it. You should take a deep dive into it. Don't just do what you have to do in the classes. Read things. Read popular books. Try to read technical books. It's hard. It's frustrating because you don't understand them a lot of the time. Um, but And that's okay, right? That's, 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 an, fine, that's an important yeah. part of learning exactly. I guess right yeah. like not understanding something but yeah. that's exactly right so yeah. so learning how to deal with things that you don't understand I mean if you don't understand anything then you're not going to get anywhere but if you understand something and there's other things you don't understand learning how to kind of compartmentalize those things is one of the key elements of learning how to do research actually because in research you never understand everything if you did it wouldn't be research it would be reading somebody else's paper that already understood yeah. everything so, so the world is very confusing and learning how to deal with that confusion and not being afraid of it is one of the most important skills. So, so that starts when, that's, it can start at a very early age, but certainly can start with undergrads. So yeah, take a deep dive into the topic, read as much as you can, um, and get a sense of what's going on, what's exciting, um, what you like, and then talk to, uh, talk to people who are either professors or postdocs, graduate students, talk to people who are somewhat further along um, and, and ask them what they're doing. So that, that I think, is, is very important. Um, you should be as broad as you can. Read everything you can. Be omnivorous. Uh, don't, but, but, but really focus on, if you're interested in physics, really do that. If you're focused in biology, you know, dive into that. Um, just because it's, there's a lot there. And, and, and even some researchers are very narrowly focused on, on certain aspects of it, but you miss out on, on a lot. So, so um, yeah, so that would be my advice. Read, read a lot. Yeah. Well, thanks for the great advice, and thank you very much for this conversation. It's been fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.